IBUK Talk, the Insurance Business UK podcast. This episode is presented in partnership with Towergate Insurance and Travellers. Occurrences of ransomware are on the rise, and it has the ability to hit all clauses in an insurance policy. But what key changes are sweeping the market when it comes to cybercrime? And what measures can organisations implement to not only protect themselves, but ensure for the best possible recovery? To discuss this and more, we are joined by Lisa Farr, Cyber Underwriter at Travellers, and Troy Johnson, Regional Sales Director at Towergate Insurance. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of IB Talk the insurance industry podcast brought to you by Insurance Business. I am Mia Wallace, Senior News Editor at Insurance Business UK, and today we're going to be exploring the unfortunately ever-current topic of ransomware. I'm delighted to welcome two specialists to this conversation, Lisa Farr, Cyber Underwriter at Travellers, and Troy Johnson, Regional Sales Director at Towergate Insurance. Many thanks to you both for joining us here today. Just to start us off, I was wondering if you might both introduce yourself and the key responsibilities of your role, maybe starting with you there, Lisa, if that's okay. So I'm Lisa Farr, so Cyber Underwriter at Travellers. And um, you know, my key responsibilities at Travellers is underwriting and managing a portfolio of cyber risks with our within our strategy and business plan. Um, we launched our Travellers Cyber Risk product back in 2018 for the UK and Ireland. And since then, we've been overseeing many various different roles internally since launching the product, ranging from um, cyber training internally and acting as a cyber point of call within the business and for other underwriters within the group, as well as training for our brokers as well. Fantastic. It sounds like a great role, I must say, Lisa. Is there anything you particularly enjoy about working in the cyberspace? The products, um, without doubt, it's very interesting. Um, I've been in the market for um, quite a few years now, and I've come from the FI space, also come from the crime space as well. But definitely, without doubt, it's a very interesting product in the market it's um obviously with ransomware issues and and privacy and liability issues it's um it's an interesting class to underwrite let's put it that way i can completely imagine and how about yourself troy could you tell me a little bit about your role hi mia yeah so i am the regional sales director for towergate insurance brokers part of my role is obviously to manage and promote development of income in that region but i also have strategic insights across the sort of tailgate insurance uh, estate and working on various initiatives at the moment one of these is is cyber hence the sort of engagement with lisa and and looking to um, work a little bit harder in this space as you know for for us as a broker and it's no different really in the in the general landscape take up of cyber insurance has traditionally been very low so we're looking at ways to promote and engage clients to recognise uh, the need for cyber insurance and the benefits that having a policy brings. No, thanks for that, Troy. It's interesting you mentioned that very low take-up because particularly at the moment, cybercrime is making a lot of headlines and it seems that the cyberspace is really ever-changing. So I wondered if you two might be able to provide some insights into the key changes that you see sweeping the space at this time. 
maybe starting with you there, Lisa, that's okay. Yeah, sure. I think we have we have to address the key changes in the market currently is without doubt rate increases and and cover. You know, we've been seeing rate increases in excess of four hundred percent throughout the whole market and brokers are really having to treat every single renewal now like a new piece of business and and whilst those rate increases may seem really extortionate we have to remember that cyber accounts were were normally always quite underpaid within within this market um and therefore rates are now rising to a level that we should have always be been seeing in the past for the exposure that a, a cyber policy can can bring no, it's a really interesting space, certainly. And does that match up with what you're seeing, Troy, from your conversations with clients across the piece? Yeah, I think in the in the client landscape, we've definitely shifted from it will never happen to me and oh, I don't see the point of this to uh, clients either being di- directly impacted by an event or knowing someone who has been directly impacted by an event. Uh, this change in... Uh, proximity has definitely driven appetite for uh, inquiries into cyber insurance. There is still is some hesitation, as Lisa's just touched on. Uh, rating and cover is an ever-changing uh, piece, and you have to be um, fully engaged with both your client and insurers to ensure that the best deal is is secured. But as I touched on earlier take-up levels are very low, you know, probably less than 15% as an industry. And there's a significant opportunity there. It's just really trying to drive uh, that interest into uh, providing protection via a cyber insurance policy. And I think definitely if we look at the last 18 months, two years, where the shift has been to work remotely, having meetings virtually is now definitely the norm rather than the the exception as it was previously, this remote working perspective and and alternative communication channels has definitely uh, exposed some gaps and flaws in IT security setups, which has just led to greater opportunities to disrupt and cyber criminals are taking advantage of that. And I think with the remote working as well, it's brought it on everybody's radar, um, how much of a victim they can be, especially within the last 18 months. And um, these companies on the SME side as well, um, they're starting to open their eyes up a lot more because they, you know, we we have been hearing about cyber ransomware events in the news for many years now, but they're normally on the large scale on large companies. But um, we've been trying to hit home to insureds and and clients that it can actually happen to anybody and and anybody can be a victim. And I think with the remote working, a positive thing out of that is that more and more insureds and clients are starting to realise that they can very much be a victim any time any time of the day with attacks happening with phishing attacks happening every 11 seconds um they're very much aware that they could be next on the list and also capacity as well um i'd say another a key change in the market it's becoming more and more difficult you know insurers wanting to reduce their exposure on accounts um on their renewals so we're seeing lots of um lots of opportunities in the excess layer space at the moment um maximum lines of around five mil where there's before insurers wasn't shy to provide 10 million lines. Um, So yeah, we're definitely seeing a a real shift and and, and cut back. And also in terms of ransomware, there's been a real shift in in ransomware covers where, you know, 
carriers are also cutting back um, applying sublimits or applying co-insurance endorsements in respect of a ransomware event, not not normally just the demand of the payment across the across the whole cyber product, um, and that that I think has has really come out of the increase of working remotely in the last eighteen months. Now it's interesting you mentioned that because it seems that every day, even a local paper or a Facebook marketplace will have something come up about an event that's happened to a, a small business. And you can see that the impact that it's having on the people involved in the business as well. And there's certainly looking at ransomware specifically. I mean, can you give me an overview of where you see this space currently standing in terms of increased threats and changing ransom payments? And if they are changing, why are they changing? Because that seems to be a subject that's quite central at the moment. Yeah, well, an interesting fact um, I've come across is that 75% of all cyber insurance claims within the market are arising out of a ransomware event. So I think this has really hit the market and hit home to the market that, you know, ransomware has the potential to hit all insuring, all insuring clauses within a cyber policy. You know, it's not just a ransomware payment to consider now, but it's a restoration cost, it's getting systems back up and running again it's um, as well as business interruption costs as well to consider for the whole time that a system is down or unavailable and even you know even third party costs within a cyber policy also what we've been seeing um recently is this two payments so you know what the hackers are doing now it's very common for threat actors to demand two payments so one payment to get systems back up and running again and then an additional payment additional payment not to release sensitive info that they've stolen or that they've copied um when they've been lurking within within the system for for who knows how long and not having this information released for our insurers is, is just as important as getting their systems back up and running again you know they don't want to be uh they don't want to have their reputation damaged, nor do they want to be um, subject to a GDPR fine, possibly, or they don't want their clients and customers' sensitive data leaked into public domain. Um, and so, therefore, it's unfortunate that they're experiencing these ransomware demands, but they really do have to. Um, they really do have to to pay up in that respect, even if they can restore from backups, and even if they can build their IT infrastructure. And Troy, do you see that clients are particularly wary around this this twofold? ransomware events that are taking place across the market? Yeah, I think it, it's really interesting, uh, the landscape, where you've got, through the, the shift, as, as we touched on earlier, to more remote working and, and IT systems changing, effectively, uh, the infrastructure changing. As Lisa's touched on there, 75% of incidents that we're seeing, or insurable incidents that we're seeing, are, are ransomware. And this is just simply because it's it's easier to make money this way. You know, don't don't ignore the fact that client data is still a very, very uh, attractive asset for cyber criminals. The data itself would then need to be sort of put to one side and then sold and then used. And the actual return on that theft, as it were, or acquisition of you know, illegal acquisition of data uh, takes longer to materialize than ransomware you can go on as lisa's touched on there clients will very quickly react to getting those systems re-enabled that if that means paying a fine or paying a ransom that will happen and criminals are very alive to this 
and the appetite for ransomware has increased as a result. The opportunity is there because IT systems have changed to create the opportunity and the returns are very swift. You know, you impact the systems organizations, they will pay quickly to get you the, um, the systems back. So it, it really is, it's, it's an interesting landscape at the moment. That, that, I think that's driving where we are at the moment. I think that's a good point, actually, on how convenient it is and how easy it is now um, for threat actors. And, you know, I've said this before, why would they want to go into a bank and, and hold up a bank for cash when they can hide behind a computer screen now and not get caught on camera or traced? Um, they, they don't want cash anymore. So they want virtual currency and they want um, PII, so personally identifiable information. They want your names, they want the addresses, bank details, and they can sell all this um, on the dark web or hold the victim to ransom. And it is very convenient. It's a very convenient um, method for them to use. And also with increases in payments as well that we've seen within the last few years. You know, in 2016 and 17, we had Petrol and Monacquire, and the demands for those were were actually quite were quite small I think it was around 300 US dollars yeah. and now in 2021 we've seen average payments of around 200,000 um, and that's not even what it starts off at it starts off the, the actual demand initially starts off a lot more and uh, you know IT forensics they can get the demands down and they can work with the extortionists um, but normally yeah 200,000 dollars just and that's just for the actual payment to the extortionist is a loss of money, and um, that's obviously without all the other costs incurred for IT forensics, breach coach calls, and you know getting getting you know business interruption as well whilst whilst the system's out. No, absolutely, and it's quite interesting because there's certainly been increased conversations around that concept of ransomware as a service and that's something I've seen quite a bit making headlines recently and I wonder if you could touch a little bit more on that and why it's becoming so much more common. Yeah, ransomware as a service is, is interesting. It's, um, it's a kind of adoption, isn't it, of the software as a service business model and it's, it's their criminal model really that en enables their their affiliates, their criminal affiliates to use already developed ransomware to execute their own attacks. So the, the developers, the, the criminal organizations, they they sell or lease the malware to, shall we say, to less capable threat actors on, on the dark web. Um, and then they can provide, you know, these low-level attackers with the ability to then go ahead and, and distribute and manage these ransomware campaigns with the developer who's behind the ransomware um, tool just receiving a cut of the cash for the decryption key i think threat actors normally use their own um codes previously um in the past but now they can just they can just buy buy those codes and use those codes and then just send it back to the uh to send a cut back to the uh, to the criminal organization yeah i think the you know the dark web as it were has always been a rich source of how-to guides um, historically those how-to guides were probably relating to more physical dealings extortion rackets crime you know credit card skimming things like this with the demand of ransomware it's just the latest iteration of a how-to guide as lisa says there's um, experienced software developers who will uh, create the original coding and then they'll release this as a 
piece of software that someone can then either lease or purchase to then deploy onwards uh, for their own means. And, you know, where there's demand, there'll be supply. And there's, we've touched on earlier, there's significant demand for this type of solution. So the demand has come in. You know, we've seen ransomware events just between 2019 and 2020 increased by over 700%. Now, if you look at payment values increasing with that, as Lisa's touched on there, you know, significant increases in the amounts being requested and paid. It's easy to understand why people see this as uh, an easy win, really, or potentially an easy win. And also, um, the researchers at a cybersecurity company have also detailed that almost two-thirds of ransomware attacks analysed last year in 2020 come from these criminal organisations using ransomware as a service. And so it's actually booming this business model and it's on the rise. And, you know, you've got malicious actors like Darkseid as well, who are also taking advantage of this as a recent group out and they're ultimately, ultimately targeting sensitive data and also on backups using, using this model. And I think it's only due to rise going forward. It makes it all sound very doom and gloom, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, it's quite a daunting thought that even the less yeah. capable threat actors are able to cause such it, widespread chaos. Exactly. I think this is why it's just risen so sharply within the last year um, because of this these kinds of methods. With so many threats abounding, I think it's, it's quite natural that people will ask what structures they can put in place to protect themselves from such attacks. And I wondered if you could both discuss a few of those protections and, and why they're so important, particularly at the moment. We often uh, see now insurers requesting multi-factor authentication or MFA. Insurers are requiring this for all staff, uh, which is fine. And the challenge we have as brokers is that a lot of clients will look at MFA and say, yeah, we've got that in place. We've got that in place for our finance team, our IT team, and our HR departments, as it's still perceived that access to your systems by uh, cyber criminals will be to get data, not to disrupt your systems, whereas obviously the reality is somewhat different to that. So clients are looking at it from a, finance, HR and IT, and we're saying, okay, actually, it needs to be everybody within your organization, because the reality is that any weak link in the structure gives criminals the entry point. And it's that um, sort of communication around the reality against what's expected that surprises a number of clients, because they're still thinking of cyber insurance as a data um, protection whereas the reality is for the vast majority of incidents as we've discussed it's protection against a ransomware incident so the expectation that all staff have mfa in place isn't unrealistic it's just down to challenging of timeline and timescales to to implement solutions like that and what we're saying that MFA is, um, we're saying that MFA refers to the use of two or more means of identification um, for an individual. So we like to think of it as like something you know, something you have, or something that you are. So a username and password, for an example, is something that you would know, um, requiring a, a code to be sent via text message 
is something you have to your mobile phone. Um, and then you've also got some biometric authentication as well, like either through fingerprint or through um, face recognition. Um, and that's something you are. And it's successful when it's enabled or when it's implemented. And um, that's why we are like we like to see it as insurers across the board. And Troy made a good point there where some some insureds um they would advise that they have it on for maybe on their HR staff or on their account staff, but that's really not the case here. We have to see MFA implemented across the whole group for just not just remote access to the network, but you know, admin or privileged access as well, and remote access to emails if you can access emails, you know, outside of a work work laptop. And we can see that in the past, MFA can block can block an account comp compromise. You know, having this two-factor in place um, apparently can block over ninety-nine percent of the account compromise attacks, and it's a it's a really common common factor when dealing with ransomware incidents as well. Um, what we've seen in the London market and what we've seen from from the US space as well, not having the lack of MFA can really can really lead to a ransomware attack and can really just let in intruders into the system because usernames and passwords are up for sale all over the place on the dark web and for criminals to purchase and you know if they can just get one of these password emails um then they, they can go ahead and get into your system as we've seen in the case of the the colonial uh, pipeline attack the oil pipeline in the us and apparently it was just from a stealing one single password um within within the database which is um which is quite scary to think that it's just come from that one one email password now, I think it's fair to say as well, isn't it, Lisa, that, you know, MFA is almost like the entry point for cyber insurance these days. And as brokers uh, and as clients, you need to start thinking of MFA really as your first port of call. It's like, right, do you have MFA in place for all staff? And if the answer is no, you need to qualify which staff they do have it for. And if it's for none, then you've got a problem. But if it's if they do have some limited uh, solutions in place for key staff, as we've discussed, then you have to start the education process to why they need it for all staff mm. and then engage with insurers to understand the timeline um, and the expectation and see if there's any um, flexibility for them to say, look, if the client commits to doing this in two weeks, a month, whatever it is, that that dialogue needs to start immediately. Um, but MFA really is, is is the starting point for a lot of cyber discussions these days. Absolutely. And it's education as well um, for clients and for insureds to explain why we want to see this and how have a lack of it can, can obviously... Um, lead to a potential attack on the systems so that's why it's important that it's a it's across the group it's worldwide as well it's for all employees it's 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 everywhere that it can be implemented is implemented it's it's interesting you said education because it is I'd, I'd even triple it it's education 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 and it's it's understanding that yeah i mean it's moved on from phishing We've all had emails that you look at and you think, not sure. Well, they're a bit more sophisticated now and there's still phishing happens. Then you've got smishing with text messages. Then you've got vishing with voice over the internet. Mm. And, you know, I've even heard of WhatsApp voice calls where there's uh, 
because execs at this business did a lot of uh, media work, they were able to pull together a voice message that could be deployed on WhatsApp from using sound bites from various uh, communications that were made by this individual. And that individual said, yeah, in future, all our hotels are going to be by X. Please pay this uh, money to this company. Of completely fraudulent, but highly sophisticated. So it, it's well worth keeping abreast of latest developments, what's happening. And I think, the, for me, the key thing is that, yes, this impacts all staff. All staff have a life as well as work. And if they use their work devices for that life, that's fine. But just be mindful of the impact. So if you're clicking on links in social media and it's on a work device, that could be the gateway into the organization. So it really is educating staff. It's having the process in place to understand what they're going to do, how they're going to um, act, action and process it, and having that robust procedure in place. Now, staff need to feel responsible for the security of the organization as much as IT department. And they're the key defense for ransomware. You know, they are the key, the cornerstone of defense, because we see it in, this, in our industry. Uh, and Lisa will no doubt back this up, that the vast majority of incidents that occur are human error. And human error, it's, it's just simply down to um, education. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, as employees, we play such an important part in keeping our, our own company safe. Um, you know, I always say that a company can have the best systems, the best IT infrastructure and can protect their critical data. And they could even spend thousands on IT, on their IT security, as we would protect our homes, you know, having burger alarms and lock them doors and closing the windows. Um, but ultimately, if you're going to open the door and let an intruder through um, because you're tricked into protecting because they're pretending to be someone they're not, then those security controls are all pretty pointless, really. Uh, and this just applies online too. Um, you know, just because you've received an email, believing it to be from someone internally or from someone you know or someone you're currently dealing with, at the moment, it doesn't it doesn't mean to say they are who they are. Um, and I think employees should really be mindful of this, as Troy said, um, mindful of emails, um, messaging, text messaging, and you know, clicking on links and remembering that these are probably very urgent emails or they're going to have errors within the emails. Um, and, and also don't feel afraid to report it, report it as spam from a company's point of view. I think having the facilities there for employees to report these emails as malicious and providing a constant training is the employ employers as well to provide the, employ uh, the constant training and um, risk awareness and even set up phishing, phishing tests. They do go a long way to help cut down these types of attacks. I think it's looking beyond your own systems as well. So if you're engaging with clients or looking at your own system, then you need to understand that, yes, you've got your own integrity of your systems, but that extends to cloud providers that you may be using. So if you've got um, IT, HR, whatever services you've got via a cloud provider, then they need to be checked as well. Do you know which cloud systems are being used? What access do they have? What services they provide? You know, have the contractual agreements been reviewed? Do you understand your comeback, your defense mechanism with these organizations? 
So there's a real potential um, stop there where your company or your organization is impacted. You rely on the cloud provider to fulfill that part of it and you haven't got recourse against them. It's not always avoidable, but if you know about it, you can certainly mitigate it. And whilst we're on the subject of cloud providers, I think, um, as you've mentioned that, Troy, I think it's really important to note that sometimes some, and I've, I don't know if you see this on, on the client side as well, but some insurers think that because their data or their PII is stored in the cloud, um, that they're fine and it's okay because it's outside of their IT systems or it's outside of their control. But that's not necessarily the case. If they are the data controller, then they're responsible um, for the notifications of those subjects, those data subjects, if their information has been breached, and ultimately they're going to have to, to provide the, um, they, they're going to have to have the cost of providing the notifications to those data data subjects, um, and also possibly GDPR fines as well. So just because if you're a client and you do store your info in the cloud or even by a third party vendor. Um, if you are the, if you by law are the data controller, then as I said, you are responsible for for that information and the notifications as well. At the very least, they're going to have to handle handle all the inquiries. You know, mm -hmm. and that's that could be time consuming and expensive in itself. And I think it's it's one of those things, isn't it, Lisa? Where until you've been through something like this, you don't realise the sheer volume of stuff that needs to get done when an incident occurs. So. Um, yeah, it, it yeah. certainly backs having experts in your corner that insurance provides. Exactly. It's knowing where to start and where to start would be to our, to our claims hotline, where, which is 24 seven, 365 days. And there they're going to get through to a breach coach who's ultimately going to, you know, handle everything for them. They're going to act as their manager basically and looking after, um, discussions with the ICO, so the Information Commission's Office, and also um, like appointing IT forensics and getting these IT forensics on board ASAP is key. You need these forensics if you're, if you're suffering a ransomware attack and you're, and you're under attack and you, you, you really don't know what to do, um, you need to get these IT forensics in. Um, ASAP and also sometimes that helps either to restore from backups or to restore your IT infrastructure or even just to um, liaise with the extortionists with these threat actors because Bitcoin goes up by the day you know sometimes Bitcoin is not a, it's not a steady income of, um, it's not a steady currency at the moment so um, sometimes the quicker you pay it the less ransom that you you paid and vice versa and it's, it's been really fascinating to hear from your insights into the subject, how you've got the real complexity of the cybercrime space coming up against the relatively very simple protective measures that can be put in place to protect against that. And I just wondered, generally speaking, looking to, looking to the future, are you positive about the ability of the wider market to protect themselves from cybercrime and to put these measures in place? I feel, I feel positive that I think the first time the insurance market has taken a consolidated approach in respect of MFA, for an example, um, which is a control that can only help prevent hackers accessing the network. And we're seeing lots of mid-market risks getting this control implemented with a real sense of urgency now. And, you know, that's only going to, um, that's only obviously going to help because obviously at the moment, some risks can be uninsurable if they haven't got that 
in place and but, you know as an underwriter I do feel like this I can be a little bit pessimistic but I think that's just an underwriter mentality in me in the sense that yeah, there yeah. are other members out there it's not just about MFA um you know it's not just MFA that's going to deter criminals and going to stop attacks I mean we also have to think you know we've also got to think about penetration testing internally and externally um whether they're using end of life systems or if these systems are kept in an isolated environment or even increasing their cyber security spending at the moment we know businesses have struggled over the last 18 months with with cash uh, cash flow um but you know it security really shouldn't take a back seat um hopefully this is a real positive measure um implementing for an example mfa which is going to to help with some of these attacks but as i said as an underwriter i, I can be a bit negative and think that there's <laughs> there's other things out there ready ready and waiting for us <laughs> i think you know when when you know we're looking at the landscape as it currently sits then this is a standard business risk you know it's no different than manufacturers retailers looking at supply chains it's no different than architects or professional services looking at key persons key individuals key teams this is looking at your systems your it infrastructure and identifying the impact of a ransomware do you have a bottleneck you know what would you do if if your systems were impacted or impeded what would you do how could it impact you both operationally and financially and then how much is it going to cost to recover you know, have you even tested your backups? The amount of organizations that you speak to and they say, yeah, yeah, we've got it backed up. And so, well, have you tried to recover from one of those backups yet? Um, looking at the way IT moves on, sometimes depends on the frequency of backups. Uh, it may not be a simple plug and play resolution to the problem. And by looking at your systems and reviewing your sort of pinch points, as it were, you can design and implement a process to minimize the impact of a ransomware attacks. So we talked about MFA and other solutions to you know, prevent people getting in, but inevitably they will get in at some point um, and it's understanding and mitigating the impact of any attack or attempted attack on your systems. Cyber insurance policies definitely help. You know, they've, they've got the operational support to design and secure your IT infrastructure because to get a cyber insurance policy, you will, will be asked about the IT setup and infrastructure of your organization and, and plans and, and how you operate from the IT landscape. So having that information will automatically make you think more rigorously around this area. And then should the worst happen, cyber policies, as Lisa's touched on, contain fantastic support with forensics response teams crisis communications even ransom negotiation you know, if you need it the, you can pass all that off to uh, experts paid for by the insurance so it's definitely worthwhile taking a closer look at this area but just be prepared because you may get asked questions that may be uncomfortable at this point to answer but you're not alone in that. There's plenty of organizations out there who don't have IT systems as robust as Lisa and others would love them to be. But then that's the job of your broker advisor to work with you, to advise you and support you on that journey. And we'll engage with insurers on your behalf to make sure that 
they're also on this journey and understand your commitment to getting your IT system uh, into a robust place. And I feel that brokers and underwriters have really worked together in the last couple of months to make sure that the clients have got the correct controls and procedures in place that insurers want to see. And I think brokers are um, really getting the message through now to insureds and their clients are listening. They're definitely listening. And what you said about backups was really interesting as well, actually, because um, there was a case where um, they was backing up, a company were backing up religiously every every couple of hours it would seem but when it come down to the crunch when they had to restore from backups they'd never been tested and they wasn't actually working um so they couldn't they couldn't actually restore from backup so testing testing is key along with like disaster recovery plans as well even when i was speaking to um had a recently is that do you have you got telephone numbers of everybody that you'd need to contact you know you need your ceo you need your your member of IT, you need your head of IT even on the calls, um, you know, all senior leadership team within within the business need to be able to communicate with each other and maybe set up a WhatsApp group so it's there ready and waiting um, with personal telephone numbers and you know, you've got that ready and waiting should an un- unfortunate event like this happen because obviously the quicker, the quicker you um, action something like this hopefully the um, the better it will be in the long run. Thank you, Lisa. And from what you've both shared, it's really clear that being forewarned is forearmed in this case and that it's all about having the right information. So for people looking to find out more about this area, is there a best way to get in contact with you to discuss these matters further? Yeah, travellers have loads of materials um, on our website. Um, we do white papers and we've got lots of guidance and security and and lots of documents in there and all our contact details can also be found on our website as well. Fantastic. And for you, Troy? Yeah, likewise, you know, at Towergate, we have a cyber hub that contains all of the information. Cyber insurance is, is such a key area that you, you need to be aware of your solutions and choices um, available to you. Fantastic. And I must just say thank you to you both for the great conversation and all the insights and recommendations that you've shared with our audience. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for joining. And for everybody listening, many thanks for joining us here today. And I look forward to welcoming you back next time here on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of IBUK Talk. For more from Troy and the team at Towergate Insurance, visit them at towergateinsurance.co.uk. And for more from Lisa and the team at Travellers, visit them at travellers.co.uk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts.